George. I'm Leonard Lopate. News stories about mass shootings have become all too common. And in his new book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America, Mark Fullman, the award-winning national affairs editor for Mother Jones, describes the decades-long search for identifiable profiles of mass shooters and looks into methods that may prevent these devastating attacks in the future. His book is published by Day Street and brings Mark Fullman to our show now. Welcome. Thanks. It's good to be here. Now, this is nothing new. Didn't you create a mass shootings database a decade ago? What led you to do that? Yeah, I began that work a decade ago in 2012 um, after the uh, massacre that took place at a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, that July. Um, 2012 turned out to be a particularly awful year for this problem. There were several more mass shootings through that fall. And then that December, there was the mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. And so at that point, I had become intensely interested in this particular type of gun violence problem. What was going on with these attacks and were they happening more and who was doing them and under what circumstances raised raised a lot of questions. And, and I was startled to find that there was very little, if any, data available on this particular type of violence. Um, so I got together with some colleagues at Mother Jones and built a database. It was the first online public database of mass shootings uh, documenting cases going back 30 years. And of course, we've had to expand it many, many times since then. But doesn't the United States lead the world in the number of mass shootings? The uh, overall national toll is nearly 40,000 shooting deaths and 115,000 injuries each year? Yeah, well, we have a we have a big problem with gun violence in our country, I think, obviously. Um, it, to be clear, mass shootings of this kind are a very small fraction of that overall problem, and yet they have enormous impact mm-hmm. psychologically, economically, culturally. Um, I've documented that in some other ways through my reporting at Mother Jones. And uh, with this specific problem, with these indiscriminate, seemingly indiscriminate public attacks, uh, we do have an inordinate version of that as well. These do exist in other places in the world, but we have many more of them than any other comparable society. And that's generally blamed on lax gun laws in many states. Although a majority of Americans, uh, as far as I, I know from the polls, favor stricter gun laws. That's right. And I think at the same time, we can acknowledge that the intense debate we have over gun laws in our country, which is very familiar and and comes up each time we have one of these traumatic attacks, continues kind of indefinitely. And and we have this very patchwork system of regulation on a state basis for firearms. We have a vast quantity of firearms in the country, nearly 400 million at this point. Um, So that, of course, is intrinsic to this problem. You don't have mass shootings without guns. But on the other hand, the, the question is, what more can we do about this problem? It's complex, and, and, it, and the scope of it is bigger than just its tool of destruction. So that really was um, a big part of my inspiration for writing the book Trigger Points and for focusing on this other way of looking at the problem, this prevention method called behavioral threat assessment that that takes a different approach to trying to solve this problem and reduce these attacks. Oh, that's an emerging field, behavioral threat assessment. How does it work? 
So it is emerging. It's grown in recent years. It has been around actually for several decades. Um, I, I write quite a bit about the history of the field in the book, which is very interesting in some ways in terms of where it came from. And we can talk about that. Um, the way that threat assessment works is it's a community-based violence prevention method that brings together collaborative expertise, primarily in mental health and in law enforcement, and then working together with other community leaders, depending on the setting. So threat assessment programs and school systems involve also administrators, school psychologists and counselors. Um, in a workplace setting, you would have personnel uh, specialists and HR people involved. And it's it's really a team approach to evaluating concerning cases where, where people are behaving in ways that are um, causing disruption or um, concern or fear among other people, um, taking a closer look at what's going on in that situation as broadly as possible, the circumstances and behaviors and assessing what the level of danger may be, and then trying to intervene constructively. To Being make a alert plan. to warning signs. Yes, exactly. Um, the, the field of threat assessment has learned through decades of work and research that there are identifiable warning signs that lead up to these attacks. And that's the focus of the work is seeing those and responding to them before it's too late. Well, you mentioned mental health as part of the expertise required here. But uh, haven't we been cutting back on psychiatric services throughout the country in recent years to save money? I can't speak to that too specifically. I, I think that generally there's a sense that mental health care is lacking in a lot of ways in our country. Um, well, I know a number of hospitals right here in New York have shut down the services largely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's important, I think, in the context of, of this prevention model to understand that, you know, we, we have some big myths about the problem of mass shooters. And one of them is that, that this is all to be blamed on mental illness. And, and that's wrong. That's not the case. Many of these cases, you know, these are people who, who have serious problems, but they're not necessarily mentally ill. And in fact, in many cases, they are not in a clinically diagnosable sense. So that is not fundamentally to blame here. Now that said, mental health is a very important component in having mental health expertise to help people who are in crisis or struggling or don't know how to cope with their problems. They're angry or depressed or paranoid. Um, then you want to bring to bear mental health resources, school counselors or a counselor in a workplace setting, so on and so forth. Um, so in, in, in that sense, the question you're asking about available resources is an important one for this model as well. But I want to be clear that that's distinct from saying that all mass shooters are insane and mentally ill, because that is a big myth that is counterproductive and, and even damaging in the context of this problem. Well, then how do you explain that so many of the shooters wind up committing suicide? Well, suicidality is an important factor in many of these cases. Uh, that is one of the first things that we documented that I found in my analysis of our database work at Mother Jones. The majority of mass shootings end in suicide. That's a serious mental health problem. Um, but you know, that in and of itself isn't to blame for a mass shooting. Well, it sounds uh, like I'm upset about things. I'm going to kill myself, but I'm going to take a whole bunch of people with me. Right. So what we're talking about here in that context is situations, and there are many cases like this, where a person develops an idea for violence that somehow becomes convinced that that 
committing an attack like this is a valid solution to their problems as a way out of their rage or suffering or despair. Um, that's not a mentally healthy place to be, but that's not necessarily, um, you know, because a person is crazy or irrational. I think that's the fundamental misunderstanding here. We tend to regard mass shooters as, as insane people who have no, who are completely detached from reality, but that's not the case. There's a lot of rational planning going on to commit an attack like this. And therein is the opportunity to intervene before it happens. Didn't the field of behavioral threat assessment growing out of, grow out of secret service investigations and FBI serial killer hunting? How successful has it been? That's right. Well, as I said earlier, the, the history of how this field came about is, is really quite fascinating. It, it begins in the early 1980s with a collaboration between forensic psychologists and secret service agents who were trying to figure out better ways to to prevent and, and possibly even predict assassination attempts. Um, and the, re the research showed pretty quickly that prediction wasn't possible, but that there was this identifiable process of behaviors and circumstances and, and warning signs leading up to these attacks. And, and a big part of that work was going and talking with incarcerated offenders and institutionalized offenders um, in some very big cases. The, the, the man who murdered John Lennon in 1980, um, the killer of an actor named Rebecca Schaefer in Los Angeles in 1989, uh, people who had tried to assassinate the president, Ronald trying to Reagan. understand better their mindset, right? And, and, and the behaviors that led them to do what they did. And through that work, um, developing ways to not only identify, but then to intervene ahead of that attack being carried out. Well, what might family members, friends, or neighbors who suspect something is going on do if they become concerned? Yeah, I think this, this describes one of the big challenges for this field of work. Um, they, they have a term for it, actually. It's called the bystander problem. There are many cases of mass shootings, and especially with school shootings, where there are multiple people around a perpetrator who have indications ahead of the attack that something's going to happen and they don't speak out or they don't know where to turn. And I think often that's because they may not necessarily recognize the warning signs or they may not know where to turn, or they might be afraid to, to report what they're feeling or seeing. Um, and so, you know, part of this model is building community awareness of behavioral warning signs um, and also then building community trust and engagement that this is a, a, a good approach with good outcomes, that it's trustworthy, that it's fair. Um, so for a family member to report to law enforcement or for a, a, a workplace employee to report to an HR director or for people in a school to report to administrators, you need to have that level of awareness and trust. And I think that's a big question for this field in, in, in trying to scale up as a solution. Well, what approaches do the, uh, does the, the FBI's behavioral analysis unit employ? Yeah, so as you mentioned earlier, the, there, there is a, a team at the FBI that does this work and conducts research that, that grew to, in some ways out of the, the, the sort of legendary serial killer hunting operation that, that is known, I think, through popular culture quite widely, right, with the Silence of the Lambs decades ago, and then uh, more recently, the Mindhunters series. Um, 
what they do with the threat assessment team at the behavioral analysis unit is not the same work in the sense of trying to profile unknown criminals and track them down. Again, they're doing the same approach as what I was describing earlier. They're studying the behavioral process leading up to mass shootings by investigating them. And then they offer assistance with cases to local authorities around the country who seek their help, who may not have the expertise or the resources to do this work. Uh, so that's the way in which the FBI has become more involved in this nationally in recent years. But fundamentally, the, the model is a community-based one. It's set up locally within school systems, within workplaces, within institutions and, and local agencies. And, and you write about an Oregon school district's violence prevention program. How does that work? Yeah, so one of the early pioneers of this in a school setting uh, it was in uh, Salem, Oregon, in the Salem-Kaiser School District. And um, I spent a, a lot of time with them a couple of years ago as I was writing trigger points to see how this really worked in action. And I thought, you know, a school setting in particular would be perhaps the most compelling because, um, you know, if there's opportunity to intervene with troubled people in a youth setting, that may be the most promising, right? Um, the program there was set up after Columbine, and that's really uh, an important shift in the history of this field. Um, the work had been originally built around workplace violence in the 80s and 90s uh, with the era of going postal with the, the post office mass shootings. And before that had come out of assassination study and celebrity stalking. 1999, the Columbine massacre causes this tectonic shift and, and focus on schools. And so the field was developing research for how to do this in schools. And the Salem-Kaiser district was kind of ahead of the curve because they'd actually had a, a, a quite horrific mass shooting in Oregon the year before in, in Springfield. Um, so people there in, in the school system, a, a school psychologist and, and some others were trying to figure out how can we set this up here? And they used some initial research from the federal government on doing this in an education setting to build their own program, to bring together a multidisciplinary team of specialists, and then to start to train administrators and counselors in each of their schools. It's, it's a large system. It's a 65 school buildings and roughly 42,000 students. Um, so they have this central team that, that leads this work within the school system and works with, with smaller teams in each of the buildings to handle cases as they come up of, of concerning behavior. And what would be considered concerning behavior in a school setting? Yeah, well, that's where the work gets really interesting, right? Because, um, you know, there's all sorts of aberrant and, and sort of, um, you know, unwanted behavior in, in an educational setting among kids. That's what we might consider the more, you know, normal or sort of garden variety problems. Some kids act school. out. Yeah, kids act out. There's bullying. Um, kids make stupid comments. You know, they may make threatening comments that are jokes or seen as jokes. So then the, the challenge of the work is to figure out, well, which among these many situations are the few cases where we're seriously concerned? And that's the real work of, of threat assessment. And the expertise brought to bear on that, again, looks at patterns of behavior and situations that can indicate that. So there's one case I write about in the book where this work is done successfully, where they handle a high school junior named Brandon, who is making comments about bringing a gun to school and shooting the school up. And his comments are very specific. He says he's going to do it on a Friday. He says he's figured out the code to his father's gun safe at home. And that's how he's going to get the weapon. 
this is overheard by a, some students and, and it's reported to faculty and goes to the threat assessment team. And they begin to gather a lot of information from around this student to try to understand better, is this a serious threat? He'd been on their radar in the past for some similar comments. Um, they soon found information that indicated that he was having some emotional issues that he might in fact be suicidal. He was starting to deteriorate in some ways personally. He was failing out of class. He was quitting a, a drama club that he had previously been into. Um, all of these signs taken together raised a significant level of concern for the team. So then they had to develop a plan to manage him. And I, I followed this case over months to see how it kind of evolved and what they did and how they sort of adapted to the situation. Uh, one of the first things they do in a case like that is to determine, does this kid actually have access to a gun? That's imperative, right? If he's talking about coming to school in two days with it and committing a shooting. Uh, the team wants to know that. So a team member goes out to his home the same day that this is reported, interviews him and his mom, determines that he does not, in fact, have access to a gun. So that was good in this particular situation in the immediate. But then there's the longer term questions of how do we manage this kid who's clearly struggling in some form of crisis and is developing ideas of violence? And the story continues on from there in terms of how they continue to assess that and manage it over time. And make him feel like he's somebody of value. That's right. I, I think in a lot of these cases with aggrieved people who go down this path, there is a sense of desperation to be seen and understood and, and known. And that, that can also kind of um, veer off into more dark territory of, of desire for notoriety, mm. um, which I write about quite a bit in the book too, and, and sort of our, our digital media age and how it impacts that. Um, but you can see particularly in a school setting, and, and as I write about with this program in Salem-Kaiser, and I saw elsewhere too with threat assessment programs, by intervening constructively, which is really the fundamental mission of this field. It's not always possible, but in many cases it is. And in that particular case with this kid, Brandon, they used what they call their wraparound strategy, where they extend a lot of close personal support hmm. and uh, also watch closely. And so they're, they're offering him educational support that's tailored to his situation. They are offering him counseling. They're trying to get him redirected into extracurricular activities that he likes. Um, and they've had a range of cases like this that they've succeeded with. Now, we don't ever hear about this in the news because it's not news because nothing happened. And that is the goal of this work. The, the evidence of success with this work is the absence of a violent outcome. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting to see this. And it, this has been going on for quite some time in a number of settings around the country. And I think does offer some hope for how we can deal with this problem more broadly. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Mark Fullman, F-O-L-L-M-A-N. His book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America, published by Day Street Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, you write about clinical psychologist Robert Fine, who in 1976 began working with inmates at Bridgewater State Hospital for the Criminally Insane near Boston. Now, 
Uh, he, after the assassination of John Lennon, didn't the U.S. Secret Service turn to him and his mentor, the psychiatrist Sherbert Fraser, to produce the definitive study on mentally ill assassins? Uh, but you say that mental illness is only a small, a, 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 a limited uh, aspect of this problem. Yeah, I think the real challenge with discussing mental health in the context of this problem is that we sort of run up against the limits of, of lay language that we use to describe mental health and mental illness, right? Um, so the narrative became and has endured as people who do this are crazy, are insane, are detached from reality. It's a way of saying, I think, culturally and, and politically, we can't understand how someone would ever do this. We, we can't relate to them. This is other. This is These people are monsters. They, they're sensationalized that way in the media coverage often, right? Um, but that's fundamentally not a helpful way to look at the problem. It's not productive. This is human behavior. And it's understandable human behavior. And that really is the genesis of the field. And, and that initial collaboration with Robert Fine, Sherbert Fraser, and the team at Bridgewater starting in the late 1970s and, and then sort of taking off in earnest in the early 1980s, working with the Secret Service to study the behaviors of assassins. Um, again, there are deep mental health issues going on in these cases, but it's only part of the picture and it's not fundamentally causal. Mental illness does not cause someone to go commit a mass shooting. That's what the field has learned through this decades of, of work and study. Um, it may be a contributing factor. It may be an exacerbating factor. You have someone who's depressed or suicidal, um, you know, then they may have circumstances that are worsened by that because, you know, now they're getting fired from their job and they're upset about it and they don't know how to cope with it. There's a lack of resiliency. That's one of the ways in which the field talks about a lot of these case subjects. Um, but again, it's fundamentally about focusing on the, the behaviors, the patterns of behavior and circumstances, the preparation, the planning, the, com the threatening communications that occur in a lot of these cases as warning signs along the way. People talking about to friends or colleagues or on social media now, of course, in, in a lot of cases, um, you know, signals about planning violence. Um, so that that early work in studying assassins is really a fascinating story to me. I, I, I loved digging into this for the book because it also speaks to the, the kind of earlier cultural and political forces that were coming to bear on violence in our country, um, coming out of a very turbulent era of political assassination. Um, then we get into the you know tabloid culture of celebrities in the 80s and celebrity stalking. And a lot of the same behavioral concerns are going on in those forms of violence that we now see today in mass shooters. So it's a really interesting connection, I think, that also speaks to our, our kind of broader questions about why we have so much violence like this in our society. Weren't the stalking behaviors that were discovered after John Lennon was, Lennon was murdered and Ronald Reagan was shot in the early 1980s, uh, weren't they studied as well? That's right. So another interesting aspect of you mentioned this, stalking before. Uh, yeah, only a certain kind of person might would stalk a celebrity. No. Yeah. Well, w one of the early discoveries in this field was that celebrity stalking is actually a small fraction of the stalking problem, if if you will. That stalking behavior is something that's much broader 
um, and is much more related to uh, personal relationships among ordinary or private citizens, right? So, um, you know, work talking somebody work, at school or stalking somebody you work with. That's right. Or in many cases, connected with intimate partner relationships, you know, ex-boyfriends, ex-husbands, uh, cases like that. And there was a, a particular focus on stalking behavior in early uh, innovation with, with threat assessment in Los Angeles. I, I tell this story in, in Trigger Points as well, how the LAPD in the late 1980s became focused on this because of the murder of Rebecca Schaefer, the rising young star in television, uh, was stalked and killed at, at, on her Hollywood doorstep. And there, you know, it quickly came out that this person who had stalked her had been showing all kinds of warning signs for a long time and was, you know, involved in some very disturbing behavior. And so the question then became, well, what, why aren't we doing more to get in front of this? Why do we have to wait for someone to die, right, before we act? And why her and not any number of other people who uh, he might have found interesting, movie stars and the like? Yeah, um, you mean why that case being pivotal? I, I, some... I, I, I wonder why somebody would choose a certain person to, that they don't know to stalk. Yeah. So the, the case literature does show Do we that know in, the psychology in, behind that. Yeah, well, in, in those cases, there is a higher degree of mental illness involved. Uh, these are people who have developed delusional ideas about about famous public figures. But as I said earlier, the, the stalking and harassment problem that turns violent and potentially lethal is much bigger in a, in a more ordinary or quotidian setting. And those are cases where you don't have that kind of mental illness, typically. Um, the, the research by threat assessment experts in the 90s um, based in L.A. and at the LAPD found that there were threefold as many cases of, of ordinary citizens doing these kinds of things to each other. And the LAPD had been confronted by several murders of stalking victims who had been on their radar. But they at the time had said, well, there's really nothing we can do about this. There's no crime committed here. And the idea of being preemptive or preventative wasn't even part of the paradigm at that point, um, as this field was just beginning to form. Well, isn't it nearly impossible to predict who's going to commit these kinds of crimes or mass violence without behavioral clues? Yes. I, the, the question of prediction, the, there is no way to predict who will do this. And, and fundamentally, this method of threat assessment is not predictive. It's preventative. So it is trying to read the warning signs in advance through accumulated knowledge and then intervening constructively. And the earlier, the better. Yes. And, and, you know, there are cases where there are punitive interventions. There are cases where case subjects are not responsive to constructive help. And, and in order to stop what is, is perceived to be um, imminent violence or, or when crimes have been committed in that process, then you, you see cases where there are inter, interdictions that way. But the majority of cases where this field succeeds, where it's at its ideal, is, is early intervention, as you suggest. De helping people who need help. That's, that's really the twin goal here. It's heading off what appears to be planned violence and at the same time getting help to people who are in serious need of help. And you write that it would begin when, I'm quoting you, a teacher notices something disturbing about a student's comments or a notebook marginalia for example, and alerts a principal or an office worker gets freaked out by a colleague's odd or vaguely menacing behavior and tells a supervisor. So the earlier that happens, the better and the easier it is to intervene and 
prevent something terrible from happening? Generally speaking, I think, yes, that is the case. Um, and you can look at a really stark counterexample, I think, in the recent school shooting that we had in the fall at Oxford High School in Michigan. I just wrote about this again yesterday in Mother Jones. It's a very stark case where the perpetrator, the accused shooter in that case, was giving off all kinds of warning signs in the months leading up to his attack, and particularly in the days before and even the day of. And this was on people's radar. The teachers were worried and they were reporting it to administrators and counselors. The, the kid had drawn a violent picture of a shooting in math class that morning. Yeah. And there were comments on it like uh, blood everywhere. Thoughts won't stop. Help me. Um, so but he did say help he, me. He literally wrote help me on the paper. Um, then when he was, um, you know, brought to the counselor's office and asked about this, he said, oh, I'm, you know, this is for a video game design I'm making. Well, the tragedy of what happened there is that the school was not trained in this approach, was not well-versed enough to understand that that wasn't enough to say, okay, well, let's let the kid go back to class. I mean, they brought his parents in. Um, they, they were so concerned that they, that they told the parents, we want you to remove him immediately and get him help. And if you don't do it within 48 hours, we're going to uh, call child services to get help. Well, that level of concern uh, and yet not being able to, um, to do more to try to understand and evaluate the danger is the real tragedy there. Because a trained threat assessment team, as I wrote about in my piece yesterday, would have acted very differently. They would have kept the kid under very tight supervision. They would have quickly sought to gather additional information about his situation, including whether or not he had access to firearms. Again, a very stark case because the parents were not forthcoming about that. They didn't tell the school that they had just bought him a gun. Um, the school could have searched his possessions in that situation. Um, just a terribly tragic situation. Um, but as you're pointing to earlier, you know, this was a case where concerned people close to the perpetrator spoke up and there was an opportunity to intervene. But aren't many of the perpetrators loners uh, less likely to share these feelings with others? No, that's another myth we have about this problem that I write about at length in Trigger Points. In all of these cases, virtually all of these cases, there are people around perpetrators who are in a position to see these warning signs. Now, some cases are harder than others, but especially in a school setting, there are many school shootings going back decades, even before Columbine, where multiple students, and in some cases, faculty, had a sense of the danger. We're seeing indications of something's wrong here. Um, we're privy to threatening communications. Um, and, you know, either didn't know what to do about it or were worried about saying something or didn't know where to turn. Um, didn't take it seriously. We see a lot of reporting like that in these cases over the years. Oh, I thought he was just joking. Um, but this this particular perpetrator in Michigan, he was texting with friends. I'm going to, hey, it's time for me to shoot up the school. He said that three months before he did it. Uh, he was texting and posting stuff on social media. And so the notion that these are complete loners who just burst forth out of complete social isolation is is wrong. That's a myth. You're listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM streaming live at WBAI.org. Psycho killer, qu'est-ce que c'est? 
conversation with Mark Pullman. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. Just go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 212-209-2950 during today's show. That's 212-209-2950 or online give the number 2WBAI.org. And if you do that, we'll be happy to send you a copy of the book. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large. And we thank you very much. And uh, remind you that our guest is Mark Fullman, who is the National Affairs Editor for Mother Jones. And since 2012, when he created a first-of-its-kind public database of mass shooters, shootings, his various investigations into gun violence have been honored with numerous awards. We're discussing his new book, From Day Street, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. And you mentioned earlier the phrase, going postal. Uh, that later was changed to going Columbine. Now, where did going postal come from? Well, as you may recall, there was a spate of mass shootings at post offices in the starting in the mid 1980s and into the early 1990s. Um, that was an early phenomenon in this um, in this particular uh, type of problem. Do we where, know why? Well, yeah, the, it, you know, as we were describing discussing earlier, that these were people who were really, by and large, quite angry and aggrieved, and and were. Um, mad about their workplace environment, felt they were being mistreated. Um, in, in a number of cases, had all kinds of other problems going on as well, personal, financial, emotional. Um, but there was kind of a notoriously bad workplace culture in post offices in that era too. And um, as part of studying this specifically as a problem in that setting, um, there was some research done that uh, both by the federal government and and by threat assessment experts at the FBI that concluded, you know, part of the issue here is that these are people who are not having their grievances addressed. I mean, that's not a justification, of course, for the horrible crimes they committed, but it tells you something about what leads a person down this pathway to violence. Um, often we're talking about people who have deep grievances and feel that they have no recourse. And they, they develop this idea of a more kind of nihilistic solution to, to their problems. But in some cases, in many of the cases, it, it is not personal. We have uh, mass shootings of, of synagogues, of black churches, uh, of demonstrations for, um, you know, for Black Lives Matter. So th- is that... Are those political grievances or are those political grievances as an excuse for other kinds of feelings? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And I think what you're pointing to is that there are various forms that grievances take in these cases. And political extremism and ideology is certainly one of them. And it's one that has grown in recent years, um, primarily from far right 
ideology and violent ideology from that part of the political spectrum. There have been more mass shootings driven in part by that kind of thinking in recent years. The Tree of Life Synagogue, as you mentioned, in Pittsburgh, uh, the big mass attack in El Paso several years ago in Texas. Uh, so, yes, that is a significant factor in the behavioral mindset and, and activity that goes into these cases. Uh, again, there is no one thing that can predict that this will happen, but there are many factors that in their coalescence in, in each unique case can be understood to be turning dangerous. And often that results in mass shooters who aren't necessarily even targeting individual people specifically. That's where these become more indiscriminate and, and kind of terrifying in that way, that they seem to be random in nature because the person's thinking has evolved to targeting a place or an institution or a community. Um, it's, it is fundamentally, can, or can be fundamentally ideological in nature. Um, so it, it's random in the sense of who may end up being hurt or killed, but it's still deliberate and specific and planned in the mind of the perpetrator. You propose a community-based model for intervening constructively with troubled people well before they have armed themselves. Have there been many attempts to institute such a model? Well, that's what this method is, right? It's a community-based model, and, and it does exist in many places now throughout the United States. It's grown in recent years, um, primarily at the local level. There is the effort, effort at the FBI we talked about earlier within the Behavioral Analysis Unit that is has modeled itself as a, as an assistance a, a form of assistance to communities doing this work and then some states of virginia after the virginia tech shootings of 2007 that's right so states have begun to adopt this as policy virginia was the first in 2008 after the big virginia tech massacre to uh mandate this for its public colleges and universities and a few years later then extended that to K through 12 public schools. And the policy at a state level has grown in other places as well. It tends to, as I say in the book, it tends to follow this problem across the map. When there's a big mass shooting, then you see states begin to consider this. So in the past several years, uh, a handful of states have now said, okay, you have to have threat assessment programs in all public schools. That this has happened in Florida after Parkland. It happened in Texas, where there was the Santa Fe High School mass shooting a few months after Parkland in the Houston area. Uh, so it has spread in that way and, and grown. But it's also interesting that this field has been decentralized from the beginning. It's as we were talking about earlier, it's grown in different settings over time and in its early history. And Leaders in the field, I've asked them, you know, how many communities are doing this? Or do you know how many threat assessment teams are there? And there's no clear answer to that. There is no centralized or sort of standardized system at this point to, to even say. But the, the work has grown and, and has started to become more known. Should we be concerned about it developing into what might be called big brotherism? Yeah, it's it's an important and fundamental question to this that I was certainly asking early on as an investigative journalist. Um, I think that I could see from pretty early on that there was great promise to this. I mean, really, my interest started with hearing about this work and, and hearing the notion that, well, hundreds of mass shootings are being stopped before they happen. Well, what is that all about? That seemed quite compelling. Um, I think that, you know, the questions about uh, concern for civil liberties and privacy are very important here. Um, 
fundamentally the method is intended, as I said earlier, to be constructive. It's to use constructive intervention. It's not to be punitive. Um, but of course, you know, this can be murky territory. Um, and I, I should add quickly too, that the reason it's not intended to be punitive is, is I think twofold. One, you're talking about a lot of cases where no one has committed a crime or maybe hasn't even violated any kind of policy in a school or in a workplace. And yet there's fear and anxiety and disruption. And so what do you do with that? Um, the field has also learned over time through case research that punitive response is often ineffective and in some cases even makes the situation worse. Because by, somebody who's feeling rejected or bullied will just feel even worse about that? That's right. It's, it's what the field calls a triggering event. Mm -hmm. It sets off a person who's already aggrieved, spiraling into a bad place thinking about violence, maybe planning violence, taking steps toward that plan. And now suddenly you've fired them. You've kicked them out of their job or you've kicked them out of school through expulsion, or you maybe you've subjected them to a temporary restraining order. Um, sometimes those measures are of course necessary in, in a dangerous or difficult situation, but it can't be the only thing that's done from the perspective of this work. Because if you rely solely on that, you're really just kicking the program out, kicking the problem out the door. And the problem is it comes back. There are many cases of workplace attacks where the fired person comes back to commit the attack. Um, this has happened with school shootings too, or the person goes elsewhere and commits an, an attack. The, the perpetrator who, who shot up uh, a political gathering for um, the then Congresswoman Gabrielle Giffords in mm -hmm. Tucson, Arizona a decade ago had been kicked out of a community college not long before. So the field has learned that to be more effective, constructive intervention, wherever possible, is the better way to go. My guess is Mark Fullman, who's written a book called Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America, published by Day Street. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Well, I, it seems to me from what you've been saying, we're caught in a bind because we do get warning behaviors uh, exhibited before an attack. Uh, the recent Brooklyn subway gunman posted warnings, and yet he was still renting vans and, uh, and using public transportation with, weapon, with a weapon. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I want to be careful about analyzing the case because there's still a lot about it that we don't know. Well, I was using that as an example. I don't mean no, 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 to absolutely. get specific and, and, into that. But we've had any number of cases where people have said, I am going to do something terrible. And yet they were free and they wound up doing it. Sure. And what I was really getting to with that is that I think that's a tough case in the sense that this appears to have been a person who was significantly isolated in at least in the short term before his his attack on the subway. Um, and so therefore, you're looking at a situation where it's going to be even more challenging to have him come on the radar of people who have this expertise, and then to be able to do something about it structurally, because he may not be, um, you know, subject to a workplace setting or a school setting, right? So he's just a person who's out on his own living in the world. Now you're talking about much more broad kind of community based prevention uh, situation, potentially. And 
you know, the, we can see his trail of warning signs now, but that's much easier to see in hindsight. Of course, you know, he posted a lot of disturbing videos on YouTube. I watched some of them. There were a lot of the, the, the very well-known themes and warning signs that are known to threat assessment experts. He was espousing political ideology, you know, racial bigotry, uh, violent misogyny. These are factors that come up in a lot of cases and to the trained eye may have set off alarm bells and then, you know, um, would have prompted further investigation that didn't happen in this case because apparently no one knew about it. And I think that is one of the big challenges um, for this approach is how do you figure out who is posing this danger and how do you do it in a way that still, as you were asking a moment ago, how do you do that in a way that still respects our legal system and civil liberties? This isn't done through broad surveillance of social media. There isn't some algorithm that can find this guy's YouTube videos and determine that he is a killer. That's getting into minority report territory, right? That's not what this field does. This field approaches specific individual cases that come to the attention of authorities where there's concern, evaluates them, and tries to intervene. When these cases are reported on the news, there's always somebody who asks, well, what was the motive? And I'm getting a feeling that that is one of the most complicated aspects of this story. Yes, I think that's right. It, it, in many cases, it's a very hard question to answer. What was the motive? Uh, the motive is complicated. It's wrapped up in a lot of the things we've been talking about, about people's personal lives, situations, circumstances, mental health. Uh, the things that they say and do can provide clues to that, but often it's just not clear. And one of the things I say in trigger points early in the book is that what I came to understand about this field and this approach to the problem is that in a way, the question of how is more important fundamentally than the question of why, why someone does this, the question of how they do it, what gets, what, what leads them to a place where they develop this plan and then carry it out. And what is that process all about? The why is part of that. You know, what are they thinking? What are they feeling? What are they believing? But in cases where that can't be answered, you can still look at the behaviors and circumstances that lead up to the attack and see warning signs. Now, there are cases, of course, where the why can be answered more clearly. I think you could look at the Charleston Church Massacre several years ago, a few years back, where that, that was clearly racially motivated. In, in the perpetrator who attacked that church or shooting up killed, a synagogue. Yeah. Right. Or shooting up a synagogue. But even then it's, it's never as simple in, in, in my experience of studying these cases for, for so long, it's never as simple as any one thing. Some of the successful interventions you write about wouldn't normally become public knowledge. Don't many of them never make it into the public record. So how did you learn about them? Right. Well, as I said earlier, I had started hearing about this work uh, through my deeper study of mass shootings from building the database at Mother Jones. And I, I started looking into it and was able to gain access to uh, the experts who do this work at the FBI and some other people in the mental health field, which is also what led me to be able to immerse with the Salem-Kaiser program in Oregon. Um, I spent time with folks in Colorado who have built this work in the wake of the Columbine massacre there in Jefferson County, which is the school district where Columbine is. Um, they have some unique problems there with what we call the copycat effect, 
um, in this discussion. So it, through these various avenues, I was able to, um, over time, kind of gain the, the opportunity and trust of the people doing this work to see inside their cases, to look at confidential case files, to discuss the cases at length with them. Um, but as you say, we don't we don't hear about these when they don't result in violence. That's that's the counterfactual success of this work, right? Nothing happens. You've done you've done your job. So um, it, it was very interesting to to get into a whole range of these cases and see many cases where individuals were in very concerning situations, in deep personal crisis, and talking about violence or. Um, you know, expressing in other ways that they might be thinking about violence and then taking steps to prepare for it, acquiring weapons, going to a gun range to practice. That comes up a lot in a lot of these mass shootings, too, that have been investigated, the ones that have actually occurred. Um, so I think by virtue of those cases in particular and talking with experts who've, who've handled hundreds of these cases over over many years, um, I became very persuaded that this there is a lot of success with this work as far as you can measure it, which is to say, you know, proving the negative that no violence resulted from these cases of concern. Didn't you also talk to survivors, people who were shot or who witnessed the shootings or who have lost loved ones? Um, that's a legacy that doesn't get discussed very much. Yeah, well, the way it intersected with with this subject for me was when I I've come to know a number of, of mass shooting survivors um, through my work more broadly on the the subject of mass shootings, investigating the problem. Um, but I, I did learn and get to know learn about and got to know a couple of a few of them who have gotten directly involved with this prevention work. Um, one in particular, a young woman named Christina Anderson, who was a victim of the Virginia Tech massacre. She was in a classroom uh, where part of that attack took place and was shot three times, mm. severely wounded and survived. Eleven of her classmates were, were murdered in that classroom and, and their teacher. Um, she's a remarkable person in, in her, uh, her personal story surviving that and her resilience coming out of it. Um, she became keenly interested in response and recovery after her own. Uh, wanted initially to understand better the story of what had happened at the university, both before and after the attack, and became involved in the field of threat assessment because she had started sharing her story with community leaders in law enforcement and in mental health. Um, and her interest in prevention and response led her to become a, a, a public speaker, um, engaged very um, in depth with this field to talk about her experience and how the warning signs in that case had been missed so many. I mean, that, that's a very, that's a marquee case for, for this problem in this way. And I write about the Virginia Tech massacre at length in the book through Christina's story um, in terms of how that, that tragedy was, was missed, even though it could have been, I think, foreseen in a lot of ways. Well, it's, a painful aspect of our lives. Are you surprised that we don't see more of this in other countries? Is this a particularly American problem? I mean, I know there are mass shootings elsewhere, but nothing like what we see here. Yeah. Yeah, I think, as I said about that initially, we have an inordinate version of this problem, <clears throat> undoubtedly. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, 
you know, there's some big questions about that. I, obviously, the the availability and and um, um, you know proliferation of firearms is is mm. intrinsic to this problem. But it's more than that, in my view. This is a cultural question we have too, or cultural questions, and as well as political ones, underwriting this. You know, what is it about our society that that um, you know, has led us to be resigned about this in some ways, that this will go on indefinitely, that there isn't really anything we can do to solve it, and that we're going to continue to have the same political arguments over and over about it. Um, you know, I, I became very frustrated with that early on as I was focusing on this this issue of gun violence. And I think many people feel that. And for me, that led to the question of what more is there that we can do? Um, you know, we, we also treat these as kind of senseless, right? As if we can't understand them, as I was saying earlier. And, and I think that's the wrong way to look at it. We can make sense of this. And so while the issue of gun regulations and the vast quantity of firearms in this country is vitally important, there, there's no reason to think that it's going to change broadly anytime soon. And given that that's the case, I think we have to ask what else can we do? And, and this approach through the work of behavioral threat assessment, I think, is one additional promising way to tackle the problem. I've been talking with Mark Fullman, F-O-L-L-M-A-N. His book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America, is published by Day Street. He's the national affairs editor for Mother Jones. And since 2012, when he created a first-of-its-kind public database for mass shootings, his various investigations into gun violence have been honored with numerous awards, and it has been my great pleasure to have him on our show today. Thank you so much. Thanks. It was great talking with you. And that brings us to the end of our show. And my great thanks to my audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, and to Keziah Guglo, the executive producer of London Pit at Lodge, for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We are asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or going online to give to WBAI.org. Right now, that's 212-209-2950. Or give, and then the number two, WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of London Thorpe at Large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America by Mark Fullman. So why not make that call right now at 212 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And we'll say say thank you with a WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $15 or more. Either way, please make that call. Um, we are the only station on the radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. We hope that you can join us again tomorrow when I'll be presenting an Easter gospel music special. We'll see you then.